0: Welcome to Winds Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. I'm Abu. I'm Brett. And Brett, we're back to talk about episode three of The Witcher. This episode's titled Betrayer Moon, and it covers the short story The Witcher, the very first one in the books, And it also gives us a bit more about
1: Yennefer. And I'm stoked. This episode was great. Yeah, it it grew on me. The first time I kind of watched through all five of them, this was probably my least favorite. And going back on the rewatch of it, it's kind of back up there with, oh, man, it might actually be my favorite. It definitely contains my favorite scene. And we will discuss that later. But, no, it definitely grew on me. But... Mainly from Yen's storyline, Geralt's storyline in here, much like the the short story, because yeah, this was the first short story in the books. Like this is where we learn about Geralt. It, you know, I didn't really care for it too much because it was really kind of basic. But yeah, it's pretty straightforward.
0: But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's do as we always do, and let's start with a quick recap of the episode, a quick refresher for those of you who may not have seen it in a while. And then we'll dive into our three key moments from the episode, and then we'll wrap up with our big picture
1: discussion. In the opening scene, we see a witcher we've never met listen to the dying victim of the striga. He demands a payment of 3,000 orans to kill the beast, which the boy's father pays up front. It might be a mistake. The boy's Huge su- mistake. <laughs> yeah. The boy succumbs to his wounds and his father screams in agony. Our unknown witcher attempts to track and kill the striga, but presumably fails. Meanwhile, a very
0: sweaty Geralt is in bed with a woman who's busy admiring his many scars. She's clearly heard some of Jaskier's ballads. She mentions that another witcher recently passed through on his way to Temeria on a job. Rumor has it that that witcher took his 3,000
1: orans and ran off. The miners of Temeria are in revolt, frustrated with the king's lack of effort in killing the monster that haunts them. Geralt offers to do the job for a third of the price— and won't even take payment until the beast is dead. Lord Ostrid arrives with the king's soldiers to confront the miners and banish Geralt from town. Triss Marigold catches up with Geralt and asks him to help her save the beast. Triss and Geralt realize the monster is a princess and a striga born from the king's sister.
0: Back in Eratusa, Istrid and Yennefer make love and discuss their future assignments, one in Temeria and the other in Edern. Jennifer is nervous about graduation and doesn't know what she wants from her enchantment. More on that in a
1: little bit. In Temeria, Triss and Geralt meet with King Foltest. Geralt puts two and two together and confronts the king about why he's never married and who the Shriga's father is. Foltest tells Geralt to leave Temeria and never return. And that's now twice. Geralt has been exiled in case you're counting. The
0: Brotherhood of Sorcerers discusses the politics of the world and debate sending Yennefer to Nilfgaard rather than Etern. Stregobor reveals that he knows that Yennefer has elven blood, and he argues that she'd be ineffective in Etern, where anti-elvish prejudice is commonplace. Tysaia opposes, but is overruled. When Yennefer learns this, she realizes that Istrid betrayed her.
1: Triss and Geralt explore the abandoned castle and find letters from Foltest and Adda's mother. They take the letters to Austrian. Geralt isn't taking any of Ostrid's bullshit and gets a confession out of it. Turns out Ostrid loved Ada and cursed Foltest to suffer. Yennefer and Istrid confront
0: each other about their betrayals. Both of them leave in tears. Yennefer rushes
1: straight to the Enchanter and demands to be made beautiful. And that Enchanter I have down is discount or low rent Gary Oldman. <laughs> That's so true. After a heart-to-heart with the king, Geralt enters the abandoned castle to face off against the Striga. He uses Austrid as bait and learns that he'll have to fight the Striga until dawn, until the rooster crows three times. Yennefer
0: tells the Enchanter to leave her eyes untouched. The Enchanter warns her that if she undergoes this transformation, she will never be able to have children. Yennefer agrees without hesitation.
1: Geralt's brutal and bloody fight with Astriga mirrors the brutal and bloody transformation Yen is undergoing. In the end, Geralt manages to save the princess, and Yennefer gets what she wants: beauty and power. And finally,
0: we see Ciri for the first time in this entire episode. She's drawn to a forest as a voice whispers her name. Ratboy heroically tries to stop her and takes an arrow to the shoulder. Poor Ratboy.
1: She ignores him and enters the forest. Hey, I won't stand for this rat boy hate. His name is Dara. Why are you bagging on rat boy? Oh, now I call him rat boy. Why are you bagging on Dara?
0: (laughs) That's true. Okay, so what an episode. Let's move on to our second segment of the show and dive into our three key moments. And this was actually, when I was scripting this episode, this was actually pretty tough for me. I kept switching up which key moments we should talk about because there's so many important little scenes in this episode that I just couldn't settle on just three. So let's try and talk about these three that we have in our notes here. But inevitably, I have a feeling we're going to talk about a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the first moment here is in Temeria, of course, Geralt having a conversation with Foltest outside of this abandoned castle right before he's about to enter and do battle with the Striga. This conversation was beautiful. Like, I think this was probably like the second best scene in this entire episode, maybe after the the scene where Yen and Istrid break up, which you you loved. And... I think the big thing that I want to touch on here and maybe start off here is with this quote. Fultes says, quote, for all it brightens, love casts long shadows. And just hearing that gave me goosebumps. Like even now, I'm just like getting shivers. He continues, I envy you to live and never have to fall in love. And that sort of feeds into this idea that's brought up in this episode and is touched upon briefly in the past two episodes. And it's this idea that Witchers, because of their transformations, because of the mutations that they underwent when they were younger, have lost the ability to feel human emotions. That's not necessarily true, but it is sort of this falsehood that's propagated by people who are out to make witchers sound like freaks, right?
1: Yeah, and I will also say that at times, especially Geralt feeds into that. Like, he doesn't really show or tell people, like, oh, no, no, that's not completely wrong. He kind of lets people believe it. But then, obviously, his actions. And then at other times when he wants to be a human, you know, when he's not pouting. But, yeah, the for all it brightens, love casts, long shadows, that's definitely the line of the episode uh, for me. Because it's it's one of those where anybody listening to that, I think, of an age can really relate to it. And it might not even necessarily mean a romantic love. It can just be any other kind of familial love. And it definitely feeds into the Witcher of these main characters in how the love of Geralt and Yen casts <laughs> as big a shadow as you can imagine. Yeah, And then the love <laughs> that Geralt and Yen will have for Ciri and that Ciri will in return with them will obviously dominate the landscape of this entire continent and this entire story, really. Yeah,
0: I agree. It's such a beautiful quote. And like you said, truly the quote of this episode. I I think I love that this quote is so counter to a lot of pop culture, right? Especially like now that we're around Christmas time and like, We get all these like cheesy Christmas stories and people fall in love and love is (laughs) is held up. Right, right. We get these like Hallmark-esque stories about how amazing love is and how falling in love is the ultimate goal and it'll bring you happiness and like your life will finally be good once you fall in love. And the reality is like everything else in life, there's a give and take. Love is a deeply powerful feeling that many of us feel, but there's always an equal and opposite reaction. And as beautiful and amazing as love can be, it can also lead to a lot of painful and tough moments in your life as well. And I think Full Test more than anyone in this story feels that.
1: Yeah, it was one they didn't hit on it as much as they did in the book. Because in the book, Full Test basically said, if you kill, and he wouldn't call it the street; he called his daughter. He's like, if you kill her, like I'm going to kill you. Like you are going to be executed if you. Kill her, and Geralt's just like, well, you know, do what I got to do. But we got a little bit more of maybe of what Foltest was in there. But again, there's not a lot of time to do it here. And I think we got out of it with that talk on the bridge at the end, where the first time Geralt, uh, when the first time Foltest and Geralt spoke, Foltest was very defiant, very like, I'm a king. How dare you speak to me this way? You know, get the hell out of my realm. And then when they talk again on the bridge. He's very, let's say he lets his guard down, and he explains, saying, you know, we resisted, we both tried, but, you know, it is what it is, we both had those feelings, and this happened, and he's not so much acting as that just, like, royal, regal king.
0: Right, he softens up, and Geralt earns his trust a bit by giving him that little little antidote thing for yeah. his daughter that'll, that'll help her sort of fend off this curse and go back to quote unquote normal. So Geralt, you know, reaches out with a little olive branch as well to be like, hey, we can work together on this. We're not enemies.
1: Dan's saying, you know, he doesn't really think he's going to live through it. (laughs) Or there's a good chance he's not going to make it through the night.
0: Right, right. So it's very clear that witchers do feel emotions. Geralt does feel emotions. He feels empathy and regret. And he has this sense of what's right and what's wrong. Like, I don't think he would take this contract for a third of the price from the miners if he didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. Like, he could have walked in there and demanded the same payment of 3,000 orants, but he walks in there, he says, you don't have to pay me right now, let me do the job first, and I'll do it for a third of the price. He's trying to right some wrong. And I think it's just so abundantly clear that witchers do feel emotions, Geralt does feel emotions, he feels them strongly, and it's just this sort of propaganda-esque falsehood about witchers, that they don't feel anything and that they have no emotions.
1: Yeah, and another thing, too, I liked how they explained in this that the witcher didn't, uh, the witcher didn't take their money and run. Like, they hid his death. And I'm pretty sure in the books we didn't know that. They just said, hey, we paid another witcher, and he took our money and left. And we never learned, because, again, Triss isn't there. Like, Triss is another, this is a show... Uh, this is a show inclusion, if you will, of Tris being full to, of actually talking and meeting Tris here, of introducing Tris, I should say, here. And I think that has to do with they're going to show the Battle of Sodden later. And so we'll have an introduction here of who Tris Marigold is. I also like that they didn't hint at any romance there because it's, I've been very vocal about my feelings of Tris Marigold and that she sucks. <laughs> Uh, completely, <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm glad they didn't really start to do anything there, and I think a lot of people out there, if, uh, maybe if you've only played the games, if you think that there's going to be a love triangle of like Triss, Yen, and Geralt, um, yeah, you're, you're going to be disappointed, because yeah, it's, no, it's non-existent, yeah, it doesn't really happen, but I will say something about what Geralt does love and has emotions about is that sweet, sweet coin Hmm. don't we and all? That's, yeah, and so that's all life is to you, monsters and money, and he says that's all it needs to be. But again, and we know by this point, but maybe some others don't know, that that's not all it is to him, or at least what he's trying to say of what it is.
0: Right, I think, I think that quote at the end is really revealing about the lies that Geralt tells himself. He has to put on this like facade of, I am the emotionless witcher, I'm not a human like back in episode two, he kept telling Filavandrel, I'm not human. I'm just like you. I'm an other. I'm not human. I'm not human. And I think that's something that Geralt really tells himself. At the end here, when Triss asks him, is that all life is to you? Just monsters and money? And Geralt sort of gruffly responds, that's all it needs to be. Well, we know that's not true. There's much more to Geralt's life, and we'll we'll see that in a little bit when he finally meets his quote-unquote family, and meets Yennefer and Siri. his life becomes about much more than just monsters and money. But I think right now, for a younger Geralt, that's what he's telling himself, to sort of survive in this world. He needs to just do his job, keep his head down, make his money, kill the monsters. That's all he's got to do. No emotions, no feelings, don't get involved. Of course, as we talked about in episode one, that sort of neutrality that he tries to follow, he continuously fails at. And uh, always ends up getting involved, always gets up, ends up getting emotional. I will say, I think he needs to tell himself this because it's sort of part of the job. He's doing a really brutal job. He has to fight literal monsters. And I think part of that is he has to become the monsters themselves to kill them, as cheesy as that sounds to say. We really see that in the Striga fight, when at the end, he bites her. He literally, like, bites her neck as a sort of defense mechanism in the heat of battle. And I'm really glad they kept that because that's that bite happens right after the Striga bites him. It just mirrors the bite. The two beasts, the two monsters, bite each other at that point. At that point, Geralt isn't human. He's just as monstrous as the Striga is. And I'm glad they kept that because that's part of his job. He has to sort of succumb to that level of monster to be able to kill the monsters he has to hunt.
1: Yeah, and this is where... This is where my philosophical side comes out here. I think it was Nietzsche. <laughs> yes, I love this side. Yeah, I think it was Nietzsche where you stare into the void long enough, the void stares back at you. And yes. it's basically you become what you eventually hate, or if you obsess about something, you become it. And yeah, that's what Geralt does. Geralt has fought these monsters. At times, he probably like has to think like a monster. And in a way, he has become a monster. He's definitely seen as a monster to many humans.
0: So, one other thing I wanted to discuss about Tamaria is Full Test, because I'm, I'm actually really curious about your thoughts on this. Do you think Full Test is a tragic
1: character or do you think he got what he deserved? Nah, he sucks. He got what he deserved.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Well,
1: we'll take a wild guess. Do you think I side with the miners down there or the king? Who do you think I'm siding with? Of course, you side with the miners, right? Of course. Right? Even though, yeah, even though they were just talking about the, the usurper at Nilfgaard, and it's like, well, it's, it's not going to end well for that dude. It's like, we need to do what we do that they did in Nilfgaard and take it back. And I'm like, there's like 10 of y'all, and y'all have like pickaxes. Right. Maybe don't start this revolution in the mine with your garbage ass weapons. But no, I think Full Test is one of those. And again, we you put your own, when I say you, the royal you, we put our own biases on there. And again, to me, it comes down to the kid was raised to be a king, and as we know his attitudes, and again, this is all coming from the books. We know very little about him from the show, of what they want to do in the show, and he looks very different, and I know who there's going to be people upset at how he looks because he is described as pretty in the books, like a handsome, pretty. And Sean Dooley, the actor did great job, got a great voice. I think he got a little Yorkshire accent in there. Yeah,
0: but he great is not, acting, yeah, props to him. But, but he is
1: not pretty. <laughs> he right, is not. some of us just aren't blessed in that Yeah, way, right? yeah, and again, <laughs> I think they got the right, um, what they felt was the best actor without it being the looks, which again, is perfectly fine. It's absolutely fine. I don't care, but I do know that some, you know, jokers will make a stink out of that. But I think it's also just the spoiled king, got whatever he wanted. Right. Well, what do you think about, I'm not trying to ask what you think about
0: incest. I know what you think about incest, but what do you, what do you think about, like, this idea of full Test falling in love and then just living out this sort of tragic life and almost losing his kingdom because of this revolt that's happening because of a thing that he did? Like, the guy just fell in love.
1: Yeah, no, uh, personally, maybe. But again, like, they were right. Austrit was right. The um the miners were right. He was letting his kingdom burn. He was letting his people suffer because of the mistake that he made and the mistake he could not get over and that he couldn't fix. And like they're talking about him hiding in his castle, which is what they did, you know. Oh, this trigger's coming out. Well, everybody who matters get behind closed doors, and all you peons down there. Well, hope you don't get eaten. If you do, yeah, well, wait till next time. And so, like that was the thing where no, nah, I don't feel sorry for personally, you know whatever it's It's hard to feel sorry for somebody that has that much power and who has that much control because they can generally do whatever the hell they want, but no, I feel again more sorrow for the kingdom that he lets suffer for his own mistakes
0: wow, well, that is a Very on-brand take Very, very, very. And I appreciate it. (laughs) Always thinking of the little guy. That's your brand. Pretty much. To wrap up, I think what I will say about Full Test is, I hate that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to draw a comparison to Jamie Lannister because he's the other pop culture, famous royalty person who had sex with his sister and uh, sired children with her. But I, I think, I suspect that there will be People out there who will feel sympathetic towards Full Test. And I think the show sort of leans toward that too, especially during this conversation between Geralt and Full Test at the bridge right outside the castle. They paint Full Test out to be sort of a sympathetic character that all he really wanted was to be in love, and now all he really wants is to have his daughter back. And Geralt even sort of sympathizes. I mean, it's his job to lift a curse or kill a monster, so he's really doing his job. But He's going the extra mile to try and lift the curse. He could just walk in there, kill her real quick, and then walk out and be like, I failed, sorry, couldn't save her. But he, he really does go the extra mile here. So I think he feels some sympathy toward full test. And I feel like show watchers and Witcher fans will also feel that sympathy. And there's going to be a lot of comparisons drawn to Jamie Lannister. Which, yeah, and
1: I'm sure a lot of people will also be like, oh brother and sister, you know, incest in here royals. Oh, they got that from Game of Thrones. And it's like, no, this book, The Last Wish, was published three years before uh, Game of Thrones came out. So...
0: Yes, for the record. Yeah. Let it be known.
1: <laughs> let it be known. Hear ye, hear ye.
0: All right. We're going to keep this conversation going, but first, a quick break. Hey, Lore Party listeners. This is Lawrence one of the producers here on the show. I'm dropping in to talk about some of the amazing content that the team has developed and that you're obviously aware of seeing as you've made it this far into this amazing episode. I would encourage you to scroll through the rest of the feed and check out some of our spinoff podcasts as well. Our episodes are easy to follow and may even inspire your next video game purchase, which is why I'm pretty much addicted to Stardew Valley. Anyways, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and chat with us on social. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Let's talk about when we first revisit Yennefer briefly and uh, this scene where we see her doing something that you'd never expect Yennefer would do with Istrid. They're having sex (laughs) and it's great. They're having a great time and there's an audience.
1: But I mean, the audience is an illusion, right? Yeah, it's made to seem as if Yen is the one that did it um, through a later line that Istrid says, at least that's what I got out of it. And I'm not quite positive why she did it unless it was something about her growing like her growing confidence, or I think it is. Okay. Yeah.
0: I think it is, because later on, when they have their argument and that really amazing scene where the two break up with each other, Istred says something along the lines of, like, you're obsessed with being admired. You want people watching you and admiring you. And I think it's just a – I I think fetish is the wrong word. That implies, like, a sexual – like, an overtly sexual nature to it. I don't think it's just a sexual thing. I think it's just – Yennefer wanting to be admired, right? She wants to be beautiful and powerful. Those are the two things Yennefer desires above all others. And this is part of that. Like, she wants to be making love. She wants to be pleasing another man, something that, you know, she probably never thought she would ever do. And she wants to be admired for it. She wants to be so, you know, she wants people to clap, which is what this illusion does, which is what she makes this illusion do. And I, I, at first, this, at this scene, I was like, whoa, what's happening? I don't get this. But then it became cl- clear to me later when they had that discussion about her obsession with being admired.
1: And that's where it would definitely help here to have a woman's perspective. Because, yes, so much of this is talked about with the beauty of everything, and it's like, are we going into physical beauty, or any kind of self-reflective beauty? And when it comes down to it, is, and again with with Istrid's just lying at the end of saying basically, like you're just upset because you're never going to be beautiful, and like that feeds so much into like Yin instantly going to be physically beautiful, and I just wonder how much or what that message is of it being like you have to be physically beautiful or nothing matters. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. If you're a hunchback with a crooked smile, it doesn't matter. Like You won't be taken seriously. And so her transformation can be almost seen as tragic in the sense mm-hmm. of you have to conform to what other people want. Because if she would have gone into that ballroom and danced with the King of Edern, if she would have looked like original Yen, I don't think he would have had the same reaction. I don't think everybody would have had the same reaction. I do want to say before we get into
0: this discussion, because you just hit the nail on its head. That is like the central theme of this episode, this idea of transformation. When it comes to Geralt's story, it's the literal transformation of the Striga back into the princess. When it comes to Yennefer, it's transformations on many, many different levels, physical, emotional, mental, there's a lot of changes happening in Yennefer's life. And I think what I will say is when it comes to physical transformations and beauty, we're going to be talking obviously about women here and you and I, what you and I say here has to be taken with a grain of salt because we're two dudes (laughs) and I've never gone through the pain of having to spend a ton of time making my hair or putting on makeup or getting all dulled up because that's what society expects of me, right? Like I went to my school dances wearing just like a damn suit and barely combing my hair, you know? And that's not the expectation that these women, these sorcerers have in this world.
1: Yeah. And even like in real life, like I went, I started pretty much balding at about let's say 26, 27. And I just started shaving my head around that time because it was one of those like well, I'm gonna take control of it and be like, I'm just gonna shave it now before I lose it. And so it doesn't matter that I can essentially, you know, lose all my hair by the age of twenty-seven, twenty-eight. And oh, it's okay. Oh, oh, bald dudes with beards are in. Okay. And some people right, can actually right. like that. There's a the, way for you to own
0: that to make yeah, it.
1: Yeah, there is, but there's just almost this and it is it is just a straight a sexist thing, and it becomes, you know, where it's a patriarchal society and the way it's kind of always been, even though it's maybe chipping away at it now, that it's just an, an inherent unfairness. And we really, really, really see that in this here, where it's like, oh, yeah, if you're a woman, no matter how talented you are, no matter how powerful you are, better be beautiful. Right. And it's actually, what's
0: interesting is that it's actually kind of hard for Yennefer to see herself as beautiful, too, at this point. Like, let's back up and give context to Yennefer's struggle here for a bit. At the start of this episode, she goes to see the Enchanter, and knockoff Gary Oldman is like, I'm going to make you beautiful, right? Like, you are just the first draft from nature. I'm the final artist. I'm going to craft you into a beautiful being. Look into this mirror and." I assume the mirror is magical in some sort, but the idea is for, is for her to imagine herself as the most beautiful version of herself. And she can't. She has a difficult time doing that. She confides in Istred and she tells him, all the other girls know exactly what they want to look like or they know exactly what they want the enchanter to do to them. I don't. And I think that's just so tragic and so revealing about Yennefer. She, she can't even see herself as beautiful. She can't imagine what that would be like because of the way she's been treated or because of her upbringing. And that sort of made my heart ache. that line right there, where I was like, wow. You know, we all imagine ourselves as a hotter version of ourselves, right? Like, at some point in our lives, we've all been like, oh, I wish I was taller. I wish I was more muscular. I wish I had a better beard, whatever, whatever. Jennifer's just like, I don't know. I don't think I can be beautiful. It's really tragic. And I, I think this is something that, to say, I really helps her with, Helps her with in this scene. Tzaya comes in, and she sort of walks her through this. She tells her, "Imagine the most powerful sorceress you can. Imagine being not just beautiful but powerful, right? Like you're not just changing yourself physically; you're changing yourself on the inside as well." And I think that potentially helps Yennefer come up with a with a better version of herself. Um, but it's still just also tragic, and the and the inherent sexism is like we've said. Also, just like, ah, uh, so vile. Just the fact that Estrade is sort of just like, what's your problem? Like, why can't you just come up with a beautiful version of yourself? It's not that hard. And Jennifer shoots back with, well, you're from Bannard. The boys at Bannard don't have to go through this fucking transformation when they graduate. Like, you're allowed to just be like old wrinkly fucks and nobody cares.
1: Yeah, she's like, yeah, you wrinkly old bitch. You can do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can just be whatever. he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very short-sighted viewpoint from him.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm glad they kept that. And I think it's it's really telling that this made it into the script. I, I appreciate that the, this sort of like w- perspective from the side of the woman. This idea that like you're being dismissive because you don't have to do it. Like when the boys graduate from Bannard, they don't go through this whole Enchanter business to become beautiful. They just graduate. So. Uh, l- let's put a pin in that transformation scene for a second. I want to wrap up our discussion of this scene in the uh, in the Enchanter's room in front of the mirror because Tessia is, once again, just absolutely owning the fucking scene and I loved every minute of it. I, I have a couple more quotes from her that I want to bring up. At one point when they're looking into the mirror, Tessia says uh, something along the lines of, uh, the world has no say-, say in it. We reshape ourselves in our own image by our own standards, and the world has no say. And I think this message is a bit twofold, because earlier, just like you said, these sorceresses are shaping themselves and making themselves more beautiful in the eyes of these kings, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of this patriarchal society that has a certain level of standard of beauty for these women, and especially for these powerful women who are sorceresses. So, I don't necessarily think it's true for it to say the world has no say in it, but I think the intention behind her saying that is for her to teach her girls, for her to teach her students that they need to own this, right? Like, there are a lot of parts of being a sorceress where you have no control, and that's a big theme in the show as well. Jennifer trying to regain and retain control. I think Tessia's lesson here to Jennifer is you can control this part of your life. This is up to you you get to decide what you look like and how you come off to the world. And I think that is a powerful lesson. She wants to take this thing that this patriarchal society that these like brutal crude kings have decided should be a thing and she wants her students to own it, to make it theirs, to use that to bolster their own confidence and figure out how they want to portray themselves to the world. So I think there's sort of a double-edged lesson there about the cruelty of the world that expects something from you and how you can take that cruelty and make it your own. Do you think I'm reading too much into that?
1: <laughs> no, because, I mean, her line, you can free the victim in the mirror forever, where I do think it's also this where Tissaia sees Yen in her and where Tissaia's probably walked this road. And I don't know, maybe she had a mentor that was similar with, you know, the tough love and the, you can almost say rigidness of it. But we're also, like what you said there, we're kind of seeing where Yen kind of starts to, she comes out of her shell, she becomes her own. In that sense of where, okay, I'm going to do this. And especially once Istrid kind of tells her off, where it's, I'm doing my own thing. You know, this is who I am. This is what I'm owed. I'm tired of taking all this shit. I'm powerful. Like, I don't need to be talked to like this. I don't need to be treated poorly. I don't need to be looked down upon by anybody. And what she sees in that is what's holding her back is her physical appearance, where people will either mistreat her or won't take her seriously. And then if she becomes this objectively, if you can use that term, beautiful, physically beautiful person then she'll have everything. And she's not even doing it to be physically beautiful or sexually attractive in that vein. She's doing it because she knows that's the final step in her becoming powerful. And honestly, her becoming manipulative because that's essentially what these sorceresses are doing and why the brotherhood is there. It is to manipulate the kings and queens of the realms. Two for what they've said for peace and all that. Theoretically, it is for peace, but I think we all know just from human nature, they're doing it for the power of it. Right. And that will come in, and again, we that'll be, you know, farther down the road. But I do think that this is yen, the, the chaos into control. This is her taking control over what she wants to do and what she wants to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, you put it beautifully. That's 100% spot on. Let's talk about Yennefer taking control. And let's talk about these two final epic scenes regarding Yennefer. First is the breakup scene with Istrid, which you absolutely loved. And then, of course, the final scene with her is her transformation and her entrance into this ballroom as a totally different, at least on the outside, as a totally different woman. I think we see this transformation well before anything physical happens, right? We open this episode with Jennifer being sexually active. And then later in the episode, she continues to show her growth and her confidence, this like almost arrogance that she has achieved at Eratusa under Tesse's tutelage, right? She confronts Tesse when she learns about her reassignment to Nilfgaard. She's very vocal. This is something like you'd never imagine her doing to Tissaia she almost insults her and then even later on when she's breaking up with Istrid she scoffs at him Istrid tries to sell her on this fantasy of like oh we could be together forever we could live this beautiful life and she's just like no that's not what I want like she refuses to live in his fantasy and then she immediately goes to the enchanter even though she's missed the graduation ceremony she goes to the enchanter herself she goes through this extremely painful surgery transformation to take control of her life. And I think this this is the completion of the arc for Yennefer that we started in the last episode. This is the Yennefer origin story coming to a close, at least in, in this sense. The first chapter of her life is coming to a close, and she becomes the Yennefer that we know in the books.
1: Yeah, the scene with Istrid is... It's my favorite scene so far, and of the episodes we've seen, it's my favorite. Uh, I think I've watched I think I've watched the episode like four times, and I'll <laughs> say this too, and I'll go ahead and put this in here now. I do think that it is a big mistake releasing this show all at once, that this show needs to be week to week, because I slammed through them when it first came out, and like everyone, I was like, I can't wait, and I watched it. You know, at night when I was a little bit tired, and so much of this just slipped by me. And I know everyone's not going to do a podcast over the show and break everything down. But as I've rewatched it, and especially rewatching with subtitles, you really kind of see everything that they're saying, or you—at least I did. At least I kind of understand it a little bit more. And there is so much going on in each of these episodes. Everything's going so fast, and there's so many names or so many places that I just think that a lot of people are going to get confused and not bother to stop down in the details. Because this is another one here where I didn't... The the first time through this scene, I didn't even really remember it. And coming back now, as I rewatched it, she's like, oh, my God. And I rewatched it again, this scene specifically. And the way uh, the actress portraying Yennefer, Anya, Silatra. Like the way she just says, like, my world is cruel, unpredictable. You enter, you survive, Uh, you die. So good. But it's like emotionless. And it's just like the way I've lived, the way I've been brought up isn't the way you have, isn't the way a lot of people have. And there's just no emotion in that. But at the same time, but then she flips it and the emotion kicks in. And when he tells her off of everything, because, you know, he's like, oh, let's just have this nice little life. And she's like, I don't want, basically saying, I don't want to be a housewife. You know, dusting floors while you mess with all this other stuff. And he's saying, like, oh, you just want to be admired, you just, all that. And she's like, no, you fool. I want to be powerful. And like what was mentioned before, it is what I am owed. Yeah. And it's saying, like, it's owed. Okay, well, who owes that to her? Is it the world? Does, do other people owe that? Is it because she's just so powerful and because she doesn't want to listen in that vein? That,
0: that, that line, that small little line, it is what I'm owed, is so important. That line totally encapsulates the growth that Yennefer has seen while, while training under Tessaia.
1: Yeah, and it becomes her mindset. And through what we've seen, when she comes back, we really start to see where she, do- she doesn't want even like a basic sorceress life. <laughs> it's like she, she wants to go to court, she wants to do all that, But again, we'll see in the future what it is. She wants more.
0: Yeah, yeah. We we definitely like in this episode. Not only did Yennefer take control, but we start to see those small, tiny, tiny seeds planted of her future arrogance. If you've read the books and if you've played the games, you realize that Yennefer is kind of, uh, I mean, full of herself, right? She she considers herself to be an extremely powerful sorceress, which you know, in fact, she is. But we start to see. Little inklings of that here, the it is what I'm owed" line. We continue to see Teseias feed her this mentality of like, you own this, right? The world doesn't get to tell you what to do. This is about you. you have the power. take control. And it's very clear that under Teseea's tutelage and all of the lessons that she's learned, Jennifer is starting to rebel. she's starting to rebel not only against her former life but against her current life, against the school that taught her. And uh, that that's going to become, like you said, very abundantly clear in the next couple episodes, what she goes on to do with that.
1: But, yeah, so she changes. She kicks open the door, not, you know, theoretically. She kicks open the door, and then every, <laughs> ooh, everyone turns, and we get that Disney-esque bell-of-the-ball entrance where everybody turns and is like, ooh, now who is this? You know, as she just gives a big fuck you to Tasea, fuck you to everybody else, goes right up to the Durnian king, and it's like, oh hey, hey, how's it going? And of course, he's saying, oh Vingerberg, someone from here, and starts to dance. comes over, it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, let me remove this, which again is very good to show where Tasea is choosing right there the brotherhood over Yen which she's not trying to, in that moment there, she's calling Yen out and being like, whoa, this is a problem. She, need, you know, we need to get her out of there. But obviously the king, who's calling the shots with everything, is just like, no, we'll dance. And we see Tessaia's worried look. We see Artorius's worried look. We see Frangilla's worried look. And we see Sabrina's worried look. And we really, really, I think they really hit on Arturius looking at just like, oh, this bitch right here. And so with what we know, which we won't say here, of coming up, certain people may be against each other shortly. And so they're kind of showing this little divide, but definitely showing that Yen is not going to be told what to do by anybody. Absolutely.
0: Yennefer, at this point, has taken complete and utter control, and she is no longer bound to anyone or anything that isn't herself. And I think that is the culmination of her, frankly, tragic life up to this point, being sold by her family, going through hell at Eratusa, and then ultimately being betrayed by the one person that she confided in and ostensibly loved, being betrayed by Estrade, All of that has led to Yennefer's resolve, her confidence, and ultimately her arrogance. And we we see that come to fruition here in this scene where she just walks in, does that like Disney princess moment that we all wish we had, you know, we <laughs> all want to walk into a room and have all the heads turn. We all want to walk up to, you know, a king and danced with him. Okay. That, that got a little specific, but yeah, <laughs> the, the idea is still there. Like everyone wants that moment and Jennifer makes it happen. She sacrifices a lot, right? She goes through this extremely painful transformation. She has sacrificed the ability to have children in the future, which will be a reoccurring theme that that comes back. She has sacrificed a lot up to this point, but she makes her Disney princess moment happen, at least in this moment. But this is The Witcher, and we know it's not all Disney princesses and happy endings, so we will see what comes of that in future episodes. So let's wrap up this episode with um, our big picture discussions. What did you think of this episode overall, start to finish? The acting, the cinematography, the script. What were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I really liked, um, I thought the writing, specific lines were really, really good that were really lasting and really hit. Yen's story, that was amazing. And like Geralt's just, I guess because with Geralt, Nothing really happened with him or nothing really changed with him that I didn't already know about. And maybe that's why it was just kind of eh. Like nothing really, nothing really hit for me of what it was, you know, besides like full test line in there about the love and all that. But nothing, it was very straightforward. Geralt's was very straightforward and it wasn't anything I didn't already know and stuff that they kept from the books. But again, like we talked about before, everything with Yen is show created because none of this was in the books. We just got what she would say, but we never saw any of this backstory. So everything with her is new, and I think that's why I like it so much. And especially the stuff with Istrid, because again, he he will be coming, like he has to be coming, maybe he doesn't have to be coming back, but he should be coming back as, if you want to love Triangle, well, there you go. So this, establishing him as this old and even first lover of Yen should be really, really good down the line. But other than that, you know, it, it again, is really good. I just, to, I'm going to beat on this so much over the course, especially when the show comes out. I just think the show would be so much better if it was released week to week.
0: Yeah, I agree. Binging this show is the wrong way to watch this show. And
1: we know so much about it. The people that don't, I just think the people that are coming uh, in blind souls. are going to miss so much of it. Right. And I'm going to be
0: selfish here and I'm going to recommend you watch an episode, you come and listen to our podcast to get some context and then you move on to the next one. Like Just sitting down and binging it for eight hours straight is going to be one hell of a way to have almost everything fly above your head and to really lose the appreciation of some of the smaller lines of dialogue and some of the very heavy themes that the show tackles. Um, I do agree with you that there wasn't a whole lot of Geralt character growth in this episode, but I think the focus on Yennefer here was important. This was really the part two of the previous episode in Yennefer's arc. This completed her story and completed the first chapter in her life and now we can move on to the Yennefer that we know from the from the novels. And I think this addition from the show was absolutely amazing. Just like you said, I agree that this addition from the show giving us this background on who Yennefer is and establishing her motivations and her past are going to make some of the moments later on in the story hit that much harder because we're going to understand where she's coming from, which we do to some extent in the books, but a lot of that is just through hints at her past and not explicitly stated. So I'm very glad we got this backstory on Yennefer. I will say I think some big picture thoughts that I have about this show are that this one will probably be the first, like, truly controversial episode, at least in, like, the the really, like, deep Witcher community. Because there were a number of changes from the story, especially when it comes to Geralt and Temeria. The changes didn't really change the story thematically, I think. Like, we still got the big arcs and we got the important set pieces that we needed to, but the introduction of Triss, the small changes with the miners having a rebellion, which wasn't necessarily explicit in the story itself. There were a number of small changes that I think people are going to nitpick, and I I have a feeling this episode might be the first, uh, the controversial one, but we'll see. Beyond that, I will say I'm glad when it came to the Striga that they kept to Uh, keeping it live action and not doing some like weird shitty CGI where Henry Cavill had to fight with a dude in a green screen, because I think that would have been bad and would have lessened how terrifying the Striga is. So I'm glad that they opted to go for prosthetics in that case. Definitely made that scene much more terrifying.
1: Yeah, that that looked really good. Because one thing too, I think it was a big worry of other people was You know, when you're fighting these like monsters, how real is it gonna look? And it helped it being so dark. You know, if it was well lit, that would kind of make it look a little Yeah. A little worse. So (laughs) keeping it dark was definitely better. Again, they're in a crypt anyway, so
0: the final thing I want to say about this episode is I think this finally, by the time we hit the third episode, the timelines are becoming extremely clear and there are some very overt in your face clues, right? Like, in that ballroom test. scene, we yeah. see young Foltest and young Ada. Yeah. Like, they're right there. <laughs> and it, so it makes it very clear that these two storylines, Yennefer's origin story and Geralt's hunt of the Striga, are happening decades apart. And that may not have been clear to show watchers who aren't also book readers and lovers of the series If they're, for newcomers. I don't think, I think they'll be extremely confused up until literally this episode. And then they'll be like, oh shit, okay, I get it. Uh, And I'm glad they did that. There were small hints leading up to it now, but now it is extremely, extremely clear that the two storylines are happening on two different timelines. Well, Brett, podcasts are podcasts. Lesser, greater, middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you on the path.